News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what happened to the red wave? That's what many are asking this morning south of the border as the votes continue to be counted in the pivotal midterm elections. The results so far certainly have held some surprises. Let's break it all down now with the help of Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about these surprises. It is Even Lindsey Graham last night was saying not the red wave they thought they were going to see. And I think it raises the question as to whether Trumpism is still as strong as it was, you know, a couple of months ago and definitely a couple of years ago, because there were a number of candidates that were backed by the former president, Donald Trump, uh, that did not win their races. That included a hefty number of 2020 uh, election deniers. And I think there may have been a lot of stock that was put into the kind of Trump touch by the Republican Party uh, that simply failed to materialize. Now, as you mentioned, there are still uh, a good number of votes that still need to be counted. So there is a possibility here that some Republicans could find themselves in a position of starting to overtake uh, gains that may look like they were made by Democrats. But at the end of the day, especially in California, uh, you know, likely incoming House Majority uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, will be waking up to a potentially lesser red wave, red tsunami, maybe just a red tide than he thought. Okay, and let's talk about some of the big surprises here in those tight races. For instance, Uh, What happened in Pennsylvania? Well, look, again, a Trump-backed candidate uh, failing to uh, materialize and, and give a win. And this is a big deal for Democrats because not only did they flip uh, a Senate seat blue from red with this win by John Fetterman, a populist kind of speaking to working-class Pennsylvanians, this also gives Democrats uh, an ability here to potentially retain uh, uh, control of the Senate. That obviously will be key, especially if uh, Republicans find themselves in the majority uh, in the House. But this was a race that was incredible. Close. Uh, there were concerns for John Fetterman's health, especially after that last debate. Fetterman having suffered a stroke earlier this year, uh, Democrats didn't think that they were going to be able to walk away with this win. And then, uh, according to the polls, projected winner last night by several percentage points. This was a plus a pickup for Democrats. Interesting. And what is going on in Georgia? I know the race is tight there, but I think everybody heard about this race that involved Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock, Warnock being the incumbent, Uh, you know, right off the bat last night, the early ballots were counted. There was a strong surge there for Warnock as the night went on, though. Uh, Day of ballots were counted that favored Republicans. And we now have a race that is below 50 percent. And in run uh, in Georgia, if candidates don't get 50 percent, it winds up in a runoff situation, meaning the two of them will have to face off against each other, likely in December. Again, Georgia could play a significant uh, role here in determining control of the Senate like it did uh, during the 2020 election. So again, we'll find ourselves in an election position, but this could also kind of take uh, some new importance if we hear from Donald Trump. If Donald Trump decides to enter the 2024 race, does that motivate more Democrats to come out, potentially relifting Raphael Warnock into a Senate seat? There's a lot of still unknowns here looking at Georgia. Were there, was there a disappointment on the Republican side? Like listening to some of the Republican leaders last night talking about it, I I got the sense that they were kind of surprised and disappointed by what they were seeing. I think 
that there was a sense of surprise. There's a sense of disappointment because they were expecting such a kind of monumental move and a monumental recapturing uh, of power in Washington. But I think that there are secondary conversations going on here because, again, this goes back to a lot of these candidates that lost were Trump-backed. But at the same time, you had an incredibly strong performance by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, with with roughly more than a million votes over his uh, Democratic uh, opponent. And DeSantis is somebody who is widely expected to enter the 2024 race himself. He has a long list of fundraisers. He has developed a solid base uh, in Florida, and he understands the politics at play within the Republican Party. So I think this is now sparking conversations that the GOP didn't do so well. Are they now looking at a potential new leader? Are they going to kind of stop putting all of their start putting all of the stock uh, into Donald Trump, potentially saying, look, the baggage and the history are no longer in favor of our party? Right. Okay, that's going to be something to watch for sure. Also, I'm still watching what's unfolding in Arizona for the governor race there, because, boy, is that ever interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, another uh, election denier, Kari Lake, uh, running for uh, the top position in the state. She was Trump-backed. She was kind of a protege uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, there were, you know, mixed polling as to whether or not she would come out on top. And, you know, here we are now the day after the election. And the Democratic Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, who oversees the elections in the state, is slightly ahead uh, in the polls. There are still a number of votes that need to come in, especially from a couple of uh, uh, heavily Democratic and Republican counties throughout the state. But again, this is an opportunity here for Democrats to say, look, Trumpism is having an impact on this country. There are people who do not want to follow it anymore. Uh, and if Democrats are able to walk away with this win, including a Senate win with uh, with Mark Kelly, who again, running up against a Trump endorsed candidate, if Democrats are able to hold on to this, even if they don't win full control in Washington, they'll say we staved off full elimination. That is considered a victory. Right, because it really was looking or it sounded like everybody was expecting to be this huge red wave here and th things aren't decided yet are they reggie like votes are still being counted here quite slowly very slowly. And in some cases, it could take days, if not weeks, to get kind of a crystal clear picture as to just how many uh, uh, victories there could be for one party or the other. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania is still going to be counting. California, it could take days and days to count the millions upon millions of votes, many of which uh, are mail-in ballots. And then we have that runoff race that's expected uh, in, in Georgia. This is an election that, while it was over yesterday, it's being counted today. It could be counted into December. We could be looking at early January before we get a better picture uh, as to which party will have which control. But this morning, White House sources are saying the president uh, is, uh, you know, a little bit uh, walking on fewer eggshells here, knowing that, well, his agenda may be slowed down, especially if they can keep the Senate. He does still have an opportunity to try and keep some of his legislating going forward. All right, Reggie, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington Bureau Chief, talking about those midterm results, which are still coming in. Makes for some fascinating reading and watching and you know what? We always talk about, oh, the media got it wrong. The media got it wrong. I think everybody got it wrong down in the States. It, clearly, there's a big disconnect between what polls tell them in some areas. Maybe the polls are just getting too too niche, right? Too into one community, not reaching everybody who might be getting out to vote or something happened there. But clearly not the result that many people were expecting, which also makes it so fascinating to watch. And there's more to come. They're not done, as Reggie was saying. So we'll have more for you on that. This is Mornings with Simi. 
That was a shockingly high number that was designed to generate headlines. It certainly got that in the last 24 hours. You've undoubtedly heard about this report commissioned by the Vancouver Police Department that was saying that we were spending $5 billion on the city of Vancouver's social safety net, particularly in the downtown east side. But read a little deeper in this report, and you might start to think something doesn't quite add up. And that's exactly what happened when Rob Shaw read the report. Political correspondent for Czech News joins us now. Hi, Rob. Good morning. Okay, so you read through this. You read it. You wrote a great piece on this. So, what happened when you read through this report? Yeah, well, the report's not out yet. It's coming out this morning, and there's two reports really. There's one that the VPD commissioned, which is done by an Alberta company. It's like 80 pages long, and then there's this summary that the VPD wrote for itself, presumably to influence its executives and and chiefs and that type of thing. And both of them are, as I described in my column, kind of misleading works of fiction. The VPD summary of the report is laughable in sections. Um, It's clearly designed, when you read it, to make an argument that we're wasting a bunch of money, primarily in Vancouver's downtown east side, helping people who are increasingly dying in the overdose crisis and committing more crimes and the VPD is not getting enough money for its budget, and the money is not being spent in the way that it would like to see. That's kind of the takeaway when you hmm. you sort of look at the report. It, that is not what the report itself says. It has its own set of problems with how it came up with its numbers and how it did its calculations. But the VPD summary was leaked to Global, part of it, earlier this week, and that's how that $5 billion number got out there without any sort of real context on on what it means. Yeah, let's do a little bit more context on that then. So when you looked at where that number came from, what did you find? Sure, yeah. Well, you've talked about it a bit earlier, but the $5 billion includes $2 billion in what are are direct federal transfers. And then you go down further in the report and you discover that that's things like um, old age security payments uh, to senior citizens and CPP pension payments and child tax benefits, basically things that everyone in Vancouver, most people get. They're not centered on the downtown east side and they don't advance the kind of narrative that VPD is pushing that this is money wasted on a social problem that is getting worse. So almost half of this thing right off the bat is not accurate. There's another 1.4 billion of that 5 billion total for charities and they called charitable contributions. And I think the insinuation that VPD would like to raise there is that there's a bunch of kind of bloated, greedy, charity nonprofits in the downtown east side uh, mainly making a bunch of money uh, while the situation gets worse. But if you go read the list of the charities that are included, you, you very quickly discover that what the report authors did is kind of base this on the Canada Revenue Agency's addresses uh, for Vancouver for charities. And some of the charities that get caught up are, are located in Vancouver. They're not, they provide services to the entire province. So you have things like um, the Legal Aid uh, Services Society, the Legal Services Society that does legal aid, and its entire budget of 70-some-odd million dollars getting thrown into this charity pot that makes it look like it's going to the downtown east side. You have um, uh, horse therapy charities. You have Aquafit charities. You have all these groups that are put in there. And, uh, you know, the report itself talks about a social safety net, and it and it fudges around this by by kind of saying well you know it, it we don't know how large it is even though they've put a number in there 
but there's a whole bunch of things included. So that's they've put those charities in. VPD takes it then and kind of torques it a little bit to make it look like, again, it's a bunch of charities getting your money because they use little graphics in the VPD summary, like a little hand holding out money. <laughs> right. Right, right. It's like some graphic artist just decided to swing for the moon on this thing. Here's a little hand holding out money, and then here's a little arrow going up with overdose deaths. And and so they're taking these, this charity figure from the report and trying to make it look like it's largesse from the groups helping in the, in the downtown east side. Right, but as you point out as well, it's some of the other charities included like Vancouver General Hospital Foundation or the UBC Hospital Foundation. That's much yep. bigger than that. Oh, for sure. The Burnaby Search and Rescue Association, which does relief missions in Nepal, is in there. Um, There's the Forensic Psychiatry Services Commission that runs clinics in like seven or eight different cities in the province that had its entire sort of revenue thrown in there. So that, okay, so now you've got $5 billion, you take $2 billion off because it's misleading, and you take another $1.4 billion off. I, I don't really know. At this point, and I said this last night on social media, I don't know how much time you spend kicking around a report that is fundamentally flawed in yeah. in many ways. And I'm a political journalist. I know fundamentally flawed reports when I see them or reports that are designed to to produce outrage yeah. and outcomes. And sure, there's a big tech briefing this morning. I'm sure it'll be interesting to see how this goes. I don't think it's worth a lot of the public's time reading this thing, to be honest with you, because I, I just think it's flawed from the get-go. Well, thank you for explaining that to us, Rob. We appreciate it this morning. You're welcome. Anytime. Take have, care. Have a good day. That's Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News and columnist. Of course, you can find him online. Uh, you know, talking about this report, yeah, for me, it just feels like there's a lot of questions now here for the VPD about why. Why did you do this? What was the outcome you were hoping to get here to generate all of this discussion with that sexy headline of $5 billion being spent on the social safety net? I'm not pretty sure that the result they're going to get is not what they were looking for. So there's more to come on that. Keep listening. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, let's talk more about our ongoing toxic drug crisis and how we help people deal with that. I know this is in the news for sure today because the social safety net is under discussion, uh, something that the Vancouver police are going to be talking about later this morning as well. But this has been an ongoing issue, right? What are we, what we're doing is not working. So what do we do to tackle this and actually make a difference? So we heard last week about that report. The the all-party legislature committee had gotten together to put out that report that had 37 recommendations to tackle this. And a lot of it did have to do with policing and how we approach and, and support this issue. Well, the National Police Federation is responding to that about you know, whether or not they agree with some of the things in this report. So we thought, let's talk about it. Joining us now is Brian Sove, president of the National Police Federation. Brian, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for the invitation, Simi. Good to be here. Well, let's talk about what we see here in this report. So when, the, when it comes to policing, what can, what can we do differently, do you think, to tackle this toxic drug crisis? Well, I think it's a bunch of things. And, and your introduction there actually hit on the number one key that we've been trying to advocate for is is social safety net. Um, you know, we have seen, and I think policing has seen, that they have become the social safety net <laughs> across Canada. And that's not working, right? It's not working for police officers. It's not working for healthcare providers. It's not working for those who are in the system. It's not working for those who are suffering from addictions or mental health issues. So we need to really have a discussion about 
how we want to improve that safety net. And this report makes a lot of really good recommendations coming, not to mention hot on the heels of the report into repeat offenders by Doug Lepard and Dr. Amanda Butler just last month, which made some very similar recommendations. Okay, let's talk about those. And what did you like in there? Well, I think one of the big things that people will see in both is it's going to cost money. Um, You know, it's investment, investment, investment after investment in social services, probation, addiction treatment, vocational uh, training for those coming out of correctional facilities. The second half of the issue of a safe supply and safe injection um, is really how do we deal with people aside from the fact of giving them a safe place to consume to ensure that they become um, happy, healthy, productive members of our community and don't have to rely on all of those social services in the future. Okay, so where do we start with that? I think everybody would agree, say, yes, that's a great idea. Where do we start? I think, you know, uh, it's it's an uncomfortable thing to say, seeing as there's a new premier coming in. I met him last week at, at Constable Yang's funeral, but um, it, it takes a government that is willing to make those investments. Um, and, you know, the discussions are obviously happening. I think the public wants to see an improvement to the social safety network that we have in Canada, especially with rising inflation, cost of housing going crazy, even the average everyday middle-income families having challenges paying the bills today. So is everybody one to two to three paychecks away from living on the street? Well, what is the network there to catch me if I fall? And where do we go from here? So really, it starts at a municipal and a provincial and ultimately a federal level to invest in those, um, those, those areas. You said that you think discussions are happening. Are they? Like, what kind of discussions? Well, I don't know if discussions are happening. I hope the discussions are happening. Obviously, governments are commissioning these reports, so they're getting information. They're getting research from very, very credible people that are making some really good recommendations that I think everybody knew already. But now it's on paper. It's before the legislature. So I think, you know, we need to keep the foot on the gas pedal for our elected officials to act on those recommendations and keep the conversation alive. Part of that is radio shows just like this, talking about it and making people aware so that they talk to their elected officials, go into your MLA's office, go into your mayor's office and say, hey, um, I think we need to improve this service. Do you think the appetite is there for that then, Brian? Do you feel like, you know, the tide might be turning a little bit on here, that clearly, you know, the public wants to see us try something different to do to make an impact here? I think the tide is turning. Yes, I think, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. You know, when it when it used to be, um, you know, we had a homeless issue uh, as Canadians and they were always under the underpass and no one would ever see them. Then it's not first front and center. But now you are seeing challenges everywhere. Uh, And, you know, I, I have the luxury of having members across the country. I'm in Halifax or Victoria last week or Calgary or Canmore. And this problem is a Canada-wide problem. It's not uh, just British Columbia. So we really need to address the issue and look at it from a whole-of-government approach. Right. And you talked as well about, um, you know, you support the recommendations to stem the flow of illicit drugs. That really sounds like it needs all levels of government to get on board this, doesn't it? 
It does. Now, obviously, we're a police union, uh, you know, so part of that, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to really harp on the fact that, um, you know, if we're talking about uh, illicit drugs coming across borders, then clearly we need to do better with our resourcing and how we stem those tides across the borders. And does that mean border enforcement? Does that mean more police officers? Does that mean better use of those resources? Probably. Um, but at the same time, Right. Um, we have to have education programs in schools. We have to, uh, you know, see what um, kids can do after school so they're not placed at risk if the parents are working and there's no place for them exactly. to go. All of those things are part of this equation. OK, you mentioned that you uh, met the new premier in waiting, uh, you know, last week at the funeral for Constable Yang. Was there a message that you wanted to send to him? Like, what would you like to see when he takes over? Well, I think you'd like to see. Uh, let, let's have a let's have a discussion. I think there's there's you know we've done a lot of work with varying levels of government in different jurisdictions across the country, including here in British Columbia, as they did the uh, uh, the Scorper report, the Special Committee on the Reforming of the Police Act, which did we did make some um, some recommendations about social safety net work and how police have become the first call for all challenges. Um, so it would let's let's revive that discussion. Let's sit down and say, how can we do this better? Um, whether it's funding for paramedics, whether it's funding for social services, probation, mental health care, all of those things. If it's the implementation of uh, different resources to respond to mental health calls to police, let's have that discussion and figure out what's best. And keeping in mind, <clears throat> not everybody lives in a major center like Surrey, because one of the report's challenges. Uh, identified the lack or non-existent resources in northern communities. And that's something we see across Canada. It's it's um, the majority of Canadians live in large centres and they can go see a doctor at an emergency health care clinic within an hour. But if you're in, I don't know, Seke Dene in British Columbia or up in Fort Nelson or up near the Yukon border, um, that might not be the case. So when I say investment, I'm, I mean investment is going to be expensive. All right, we're going to talk more about that. Uh, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of discussion about these meetings that went on for two days this week. Provincial health ministers and the federal health minister meeting face-to-face for the first time in four years. But they were unable to come up with next steps on making a deal for health care funding. Let's talk more about what happened. Joining us now is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Are you disappointed with how things went? Of course. Um, not, But not in all of the meetings. We had very important meetings between provincial ministers, all of whom are facing in our health systems and our patients and our health care workers the same challenges across our provinces. Uh, Many much more significant in British Columbia with regard to emergency rooms and respiratory illnesses and all these other questions. So we had an excellent, uh, excellent work that we did together, substantive work on breaking down barriers for health professionals, etc. Um, before our meeting or during our first day of our meeting, which is the provincial meeting, the prime minister said, um, after a year of saying nothing on the subject, a year of requests, there'd be more money for the Canada health transfer. And he said he he suggested that he had conditions for that. And so one would have expected to get more information about that. But in fact, uh, unfortunately, uh, the federal health minister or the prime minister had no information about money, uh, conditions, 
timing, any future meetings. They had nothing. This was just a soundbite. And, you know, with great respect, um, Prime Minister has been Prime Minister of our country for longer than any of the premiers have been premier, right? So he's a very experienced guy. I, I don't think he's the disruptor in chief, and he shouldn't be that on a subject of such importance to British Columbia. So we're going to continue to do the work. And we made our major announcement on primary care last week. We are, all the jurisdictions in Canada are announcing uh, more nursing spaces and massive responses to the crisis facing uh, nursing. We're just going to continue to do our work and hope that um, we get, let's just call it a more mature response in the future from the federal government. Is there unanimity, unanimity among the provinces then? Because I know there'd been some discussion that maybe what the federal government will do is start cutting individual deals with the provinces. Like, what are you hearing? Well, there's absolute unanimity amongst the provinces and a unanimity of, of purpose as well. We're all doing many of the same things. They're increasing nursing seats in BC. We're doing that, right? 604 new nursing seats on top of all of the increases that have happened. They're doing that in PEI as well. And that's important because people move in our lives. We move between provinces. I was born in Ontario. I moved when I was five, right? So that's important. And that work uh, continues. But there is absolute unanimity of the provinces on this question. There has been for a year through the entire time Premier Horgan was uh, chair of the Council of the Federation. Uh, he made this argument to the federal government for that whole year. And it's a little disappointing, you know, um, uh, because really, if they had no intention of doing anything, they shouldn't have been talking about it in public. This is not, we don't govern by soundbite, we govern by action. And I think the people who are dealing with challenges for care and the people working in the system deserve better than that. So was it not even a matter of them offering things that, you know, the provinces didn't want to go along with? It wasn't a matter of too many strings? It was just nothing? Nothing. So they announced uh, the Prime Minister and then the Minister of Health said, the, suggested there would be more money for the Canada Health Transfer. They suggested there might be conditions. This we understand in public or in private, uh, not, not when we were meeting in more informal times, nothing. No information on money, no information on conditions, no information on process. You know, and in some cases, you think the Prime Minister said something, and, oh, there must be a lot behind that. And as it turned out, it was just his comments. And then, oddly, the next day, he started kind of trash talking the provinces. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that's the right way to go. But, you know, I remain uh, optimistic because the, it's clear the direction we need to go. We need to make very ex- ex- substantial investments in the short term and in the long term in public health care. And we need the federal government to be a key partner, as they always have been. And by the way, have been over the last uh, two years during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and and so I, I don't say this with any disrespect to Mr. Duclos or anyone else. We've worked together well. It's time they came to the table on this. And I'm, I'm, I remain optimistic. And one, one can't be any other way uh, that the, the sheer fact and need here will drive the federal government to act. But you and the other federal, the other provincial health ministers, you must feel a little bit misled then. Um, you know, disappointed, yes. Um, and it may be that the federal government intends to do something at some point. But, you know, this this conference wasn't a surprise for anybody. It's been coming up for months. Uh, You know, we haven't met in person. We've met, of course, dozens and dozens of times by Zoom, as you understand, during COVID-19. So we've been doing lots of work uh, together. But this was an in-person meeting. It was planned in the schedule. The prime minister made 
what amounted to an announcement the morning of the first day. So disappointed yet, but you know, not discouraged. Uh, hopefully, um, they'll uh, they'll come up with something soon. What we'd like to see, and I think what Canadians would like to see, is for the prime minister and the premiers and everyone else should be there. Finance ministers and health ministers should come together and and uh, have a meeting on this question and arrive at some conclusions. That's what we need right now. In the meantime, got to continue to do the work, and there is a lot of work to do. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Hey, anytime. Take care. Eh? You too. This is Mornings with Simi. We all love a good mystery. We all love hearing about cold cases on the hope that maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to solve them, right? And who better to write about them than our next guest, Eve Lazarus, with a host of the Cold Case Canada podcast, which you should definitely check out. Also, latest book that she has out, brand new actually, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most sensational murder and missing persons cases. Good morning, Eve. Hi, Simi. How did the party go? It was great. Thank you. I was so grateful so many people braved the cold and snow to come out. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet, yes. So the launch party is for the new book. Now, how do you decide, like, how do you find these sensational cases? Well, a lot of the cases just find me, I guess, in a sense. Um, I write a, a Facebook page, you know, I run a Facebook page called Cold Case Canada, and a lot of the cases have come to me through family and friends. Uh, I tend to, to write a post up on the, the date that the person went missing or were murdered, and um, often asked to include other ones. And, and so a lot of the cases came that way. You know, one of them was a, a 12 year old called Brenda Byman, who was um, missing from Invermere way back in 1961. And the family had sent me a picture and asked me to do up a post, which I did. And, and it just got so interesting. I ended up going down the rabbit hole on that one. And she's a chapter in the book. And this morning, for example, I've got a post about um, a 15-year-old girl called my family, Dorothy Sanders. Her family and friends called her Dot. And she was murdered 77 years ago today in 1945 in Saanich and and she's in my book and I came about her by accident. I was researching another 15-year-old girl, Molly Justice, who's also in the book and uh, was murdered in the same area two years earlier, so way back during the Second World War. And there was quite a lot out there about Molly, but really nothing about Dot, just a couple of newspaper clippings. And I got the inquest and found there was a really pathetically short investigation. And when I called Saanich Police, she wasn't even on their radar. And I just felt that we could do better for her. And so she's a story in the book. Yeah, what did, tell me about that case then. How did she go missing? Well, she, um, she was missing for a couple of weeks. And uh, the newspaper clippings at the time sort of said, you know, she's, she's all right. You know, she's just taken herself off and, and so forth. And, and then she was found literally two weeks later dead. Um, just about oh, a couple of blocks from a home in Saanich. Um, she'd you know, been coming home from work later and had been murdered, strangled. And even in the inquest, you know, they wouldn't say you know, she'd been murdered. She'd obviously been strangled and she'd been beaten up. And, you know, she didn't do that to herself. And, but it was never really investigated. And you know, I don't know whether it was just you know, during the war that police were, were really strapped for, for people. And you know, I read somewhere it was kind of farm boys given guns during that time. But you know, not to be picked up or ever investigated again, I, I just think you know, she needed more justice or 
she needed she deserved better. Absolutely. Why, Eve? Why do you think some of these stories get forgotten and yet others stay with us always? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And you know, particularly searched out stories that that are you know, haven't had a lot of attention. You know, for instance, we see Michael Dunahy. And, exactly. you know, I'm sure you're the same. You know, his face yeah. is seared on my brain and has been for over 30 years. And there's been books written about him. And, you know, so I, I didn't go into Michael except to mention that. And it's tragic. But, you know, there's a three-year-old, Casey Bowen, missing from Delta since oh my 1989. Yes. I've never heard of her. Uh, someone had mentioned that on my Facebook page. And when I started looking into that, I thought... You know, and her mother com- committed suicide 10 years later. It's just a tragic, tragic story. And so I wanted to, to get that in the book, for example. So, you know, Casey's in the book. And you've got the missing Jack family from Prince George. Four people, two, you know, two parents aged 26, and their two sons, Russell, aged nine, and Ryan, aged four, just disappeared on the way to what they thought was a job. Never a trace of them has been found. And I think it's the only case in Canadian history that a whole family's gone missing. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad, Eve, that you mentioned Casey Ray's Casey Rose Bowen, because I vividly remember that case. I was in high school. And in fact, the Michael Dunahy case, I think, got a lot of attention because there had also been this case of this missing three-year-old girl. But over time, we seem to have forgotten her and no trace was ever found, right? Nothing. No. Awful case. Um, and she could actually be alive. That, that's my hope. That's true. I know Delta Police have said they may, she may not even realize that she was abducted as a child. This case is so um, mysterious. And were you surprised by the number of these types of cases that you uncovered? Yeah, there are literally hundreds to choose from, which was, which was really awful. Um, and a lot of them, you know, have got chosen cases that um, range in, in age from 1943 to 1993. So it's way before DNA because DNA, you know, didn't hit the forensic toolkit until the mid-90s. And a lot of the evidence was lost, it was contaminated, it was thrown out, if you can believe that. And so the only way these cases are going to be solved is if new information comes forward. And I think the only way that's going to happen is if we keep, you know, talking about them in the media, if we keep writing about them, podcasting about them, and, and hope that police, you know, take a second look. And, you know, hopefully new information will come in to help them do that. Yeah, true. so true. I know I love unsolved mysteries. I love hearing about them on the hope that, you know, something will come along and, and get that solved. Do you have a particular case, Eve, that you would like to highlight uh, among all the ones that you wrote about? Well, I, I think one that really, get, you know, wrenches on me is the Jack family that I just mentioned from okay. Prince George, you know, a whole family that's disappeared without a trace. And um, Doreen, the, the mother's sister, Marlene, has been, you know, relentless in getting attention for them. And I so admire her because, you know, originally it was just really forgotten about. And, and during, she's got a Facebook page now with the 3,000-odd members and it's really, you know, on the police to, to keep the case alive and with billboards and, and things like that. So it, it's amazing, you know, it's a full-time job and hopefully something will come out of all of that. Well, hopefully people will read your book and it might jar something. Is the book available now? It is, yeah. It, it'll be out in uh, Chapters in Indigo in about a week or so, but it's out in indie uh, 
bookstores now and available online. Oh, I'm going to have to go pick one up. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Simi. That's Eve Lazarus, host of the Cold Case Canada podcast. Her latest book, you should pick it up too, is called Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most sensational murder and missing persons cases. And yeah, I think a lot of them in there, you will be very surprised to find out that you didn't know about them. And I'm so glad that Eve did bring up uh, Casey Bowen because I so vividly remember that because I was I think living in Delta at that time too and remember that this three-year-old girl went missing from her bed by the way in the middle of the night in North Delta and nobody ever has known since then what happened to her so pick up a copy of Eve's book and read more about these stories some of them definitely need some light shed on them this is mornings with Simi Oh, politicians, sometimes they try to compare themselves to the average person and it usually doesn't go well. And I'm talking politicians of all parties do this and it doesn't usually end up very well at all. Because by now you've probably heard about Christopher Freeland, the deputy prime minister, talking about Canadians trying to save money. And she used the example of maybe giving up a Disney Plus subscription. And then, okay, so she was asked about it by a reporter and had this to say. Regarding uh, your comment regarding uh, Disney Plus and Canadians uh, in some instances calling that out of touch um, uh, with Canadians in general, Um, and I was wondering if if, if you could comment on that. Um, Of course. Look, I think uh, I want to start by really recognizing that I am a very privileged person, for sure. Uh, Like other elected federal leaders, um, I am paid a a really significant salary. And I know that that puts me in a really, really privileged position. The people who are struggling in Canada today with today's high prices aren't people like me. They're not federally elected politicians. They are people across the country who earn a low income, who really do find that today's high prices mean they have to make difficult choices about what food to buy about whether to buy groceries or pull together the money to pay the rent. So I 100% recognize that. Very careful with their words there because you know what? Politicians should just learn when it comes to trying to compare themselves to the average person. Our Roger Silhol is with us now. You know, Roger, this reminds me of all the other times that this has happened to. I was thinking about um, recently as well with Jason Kenney when he tried to fill up on gas and then he, you know, he's trying to show that he was like, just like everybody else. And then he fumbled with the fuel pump and it didn't go well. And that, that became the defining thing. Yeah, because they're not one of us, are they? (laughs) They certainly earn so much more than us. You know, if I was on her PR team, obviously I'd be shaking my head because she said the quiet part out loud. She told Canadians, yes, I know times are tough, but here's how you should spend your hard-earned money. So I hear why people are really upset about this. Um, And I think that most people would say that she has no business telling Canadians who earn so much less than her how to save their money. 
and what to buy, especially and what not to buy. But Simi, there is this other side. Okay, bear with me because we all are looking at these rising costs. Everyone's thinking about money. How do I stretch my dollar, whether it's driving less to save on gas or shopping differently at the grocery store. Maybe you're not buying as much of a certain product as others. Maybe you're cutting expenses by eating at home only, not eating out anymore. Ultimately, we are all looking to save money. And, you know, this reminds me of an example from my own life. When when I was a university student, the principal of the university uh, went on this long tirade about how she was sick of seeing students buying coffee at Starbucks. And she said, you know, you are between, for the most part, people are between the ages of 18 to 22 and many of them on student loans and were buying coffee on a daily basis. And did it sting to hear it? Absolutely. But there's some truth there, right? I feel like there's so many perks in our lives these days that we've started to see as necessity instead of as perks. And it wasn't always the case, right? Like but, look at the popularity, for example, of the iPhone, right? Yeah, when I, that came to market, they said this was not going to become a popular product. It was too luxury. Now everyone's got one. Everyone finds a way to keep one. But it's also necessary. I think that's the other argument that the average person would make, all of us would make, is that, okay, sure, it seems like it's a luxury, but the iPhone, like, talk to seniors and stuff who feel like they get shut out of stuff because they don't have a phone now. Companies yeah. have made it necessary for us to have these things. And the thing is, I don't think people, hardworking people want to be lectured to by any politician about how to spend their money, even if it is a coffee every day. Go have your coffee every day. You just don't want to be told by a politician that you shouldn't be having a coffee every day. You don't want to be told by a politician to do anything, whether it's to buy something or not to buy something, I think. Like, it does not sit well with people to hear that from Christia Freeland. She should not have made any comment whatsoever about how people should spend their money. But I think... Even given our economic times, a lot of people are going to outright refuse to cut their spending, right? So moving on from her, just the matter in general of like, are people willing to cut subscriptions right now? I think they you are. Know, I think I think some are. And I think a lot are really, it feels shameful to, to be called out on it. But a lot of people are like, no, you know what? This is something that I really want to keep. And I think the real test is going to be the holiday shopping ahead of us because we've got, you know, Black Friday coming up, Boxing Day. And if you really want to save, then you forget about the deals altogether and you just don't shop, right? Right. I think people would also argue, listen, if I'm going to spend, you know, $15 a month on a subscription for a streamer, but no, I'm not going to the movies as much anymore, or I'm not going out for dinner anymore. Yeah, that's actually a savings for people. Like we are making choices about where we spend our money. And the retail shopping, that's a good point too, because we will see, I know, have you noticed that Black Friday sales have already started? I've noticed that. I've also noticed a lot of help wanted signs on every uh, retail's door, basically. You go to the mall and everybody is looking for employees to work the busy period, I guess. Um, you know, I even read one report that said uh, that they were having so much difficulty in, in one mall to find new employees just for a short period of time to work the sales uh, that they were going to cut their hours, the store hours. Yeah, that's the thing. And so we'll see how much people are willing. I think we're all going to be looking for a deal. Like who isn't at this time of year? So I was prompted actually by one of our listeners who said that she had finished her Christmas shopping and got it all in a Rubbermaid bin, like stowed away. I love that. I was that. so blown away by that and motivated to do my Christmas shopping. So I'm nearly done mine. 
and I'm going to avoid the sales because you know what? I'm not ashamed to admit this. I am a sucker for a deal. So I'm one of these people who I will not be looking for anything, but if the deal is good enough, I'm buying it. So uh, I'm going to avoid the the Black Friday shopping. I'm going to avoid Boxing Day shopping, all of those sales that are trying to lure me in. I know what they're up to. Okay. But I don't think anybody will say no to a deal. People want to be generous. That's the thing, right? You want to be generous. You want to get gifts for your loved ones and for your friends. And and if you can find something, if there's enough of an incentive, I think people will do that. But if prices, you know, because of inflation, everything stay high, well, it has to be a deal, I think, these days for people to spend that money. I'm so curious if people are letting one another off the hook this holiday season and saying, you know what, let's not do gifts. Let's uh, do something else. Let's spend time together or let's, you know, maybe spend instead on, you know, something collective or an experience instead of all the stuff, which we certainly do have a lot of. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, we'll have to ask people that. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there. It's a good point about retail shopping. Like, have you decided on you know, how you're going to approach gift giving this year for the holidays? Have you already told, you know, family and friends, listen, I'm cutting back this year. We're not doing as much. Or maybe you've already, you know, gone out of your way to find some good deals and put those aside. Like we had one of our listeners tell us. Yeah, tell us how you're approaching the holiday gift giving season ahead of us. Maybe you're changing everything. Maybe you're not. You're just going to look for better deals. Simi at cknw.com. We'll continue that conversation, I think, especially as we are ramping up and seeing more sales and deals out there about how you're spending money at this time of year. 